I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. That's. Yeah, they have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm the World Cup. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. Well, I don't know what you're talking about. What did you want? I'd like to stay alive for six days. I'd say it to your face, and I'll say it to you now. I'm down to Anfield, and we'll see them, won't we? What you doing down here, you shawny man? Hello there and welcome to the Irish Times Second Captain's Football Podcast The FA Cup's greatest day Screams the front page of the Sunday Times About the drama of events in England on Saturday Bradford fight back stuns Chelsea Man City humbled by Middlesbrough It says here Ken hmm. I could go on Paul Rowan at Sanford Bridge John Aislewood at Etihad Stadium But you get the, you know how newspapers work They have reporters hmm. at these games reporters, Each Sorry, reporter goes to a match and reports on that match Better just take this uh, cold compress off my head Because... I'm actually only, I've only just recovered from all of the FA Cup magic that I've seen. Unbelievable. It was truly the most magical of all of the magical FA Cup weekends. It was romantic as well, there was romance. Well, there was romance and there was magic. Romance and magic, magic and romance. Were you pulled in by it all again? I was bored by it. Ah, come on. I was deeply bored by it. Um, I thought to myself, this is just the worst time of year. You know, in this this job, uh, talking about football. This is the worst time. There's nothing happening. There's these games, these FA Cup games that nobody Look cares this about. Guy's face, Ken. I, I, I hereby show you uh, my first, Mark Yates. first and only piece of physical evidence here. This Exhibit is Mark Yates. Look at look at his face, Ken. This guy can't believe it. He literally does not know what to do. He's a Bradford City player. He's just scored an amazing goal against Chelsea. Hmm. They've won four two at Stamford Bridge from two 0 down in possibly the biggest shock in the history of the competition. And you were bored by uh, this. Well, who was applauding louder than anyone in the stadium? Jose Mourinho. Jose Mourinho practically went up there and, and kissed Mark Yates' face. Uh, so delighted was he uh, with being knocked out of the FA Cup. Uh, and he, they talk about, you know, oh, the giant killing. That's the thing that happens in the FA Cup. But actually now all that happens is the giant, his fixture congestion is eased. It's like, oh, that's terrible. I'm going to have a couple of weekends off to, to recharge the batteries. That's really, you know... I feel so terrible. You don't take that. any joy out of Bradford City winning, coming from 2 0 down to win 4 2. You see, you're looking at it from the point of view of the motivation of the bigger well, team. Well, maybe I have what, a, zero sum, a zero sum attitude to it. You know, every winner has to, there has to be a loser for every winner. You know, you can't have all this joy on one side without corresponding pain to balance it on the other side. You know, I, I believe that the cosmic balance of the universe requires joy to be balanced by pain. And if the loser is standing there applauding and saying, what What about these guys? Please give it up for Bradford City. And that's what Jose Mourinho was doing. Then I feel as though the joy is... Come on, I can't You didn't enjoy Middlesbrough. You didn't enjoy that uh, that winning goal. Oh, I've totally forgotten the name of the player who almost pulled off the goal of the season. Tomlin. Tomlin. Young Tomlin, Murph. He's not that young, I'm sure, but... <laughs> And we don't know his first name, but this is this is why it's like seventies football. We just refer to players by their surnames: <laughs> Tomlin, Middlesbrough, yeah. Lee, to- off, Lee Tomlin. He almost pulled off a Dennis Bergkamp versus Leicester City type goal where he spun a defender versus Newcastle. Actually, well, yeah. Bergkamp scored a few of those goals, but the, the, the one Newcastle, on Newcastle one is what I'm thinking. Yeah. Of. It was nothing like Dennis Bergkamp. It was nowhere near. He hit the, not, He hit the post with an outside. Let's not blaspheme that, what Dennis Bergkamp did against Newcastle. But it doesn't matter, Ken. This guy. Took a second chance at slaying the monster of Manchester City. Mm. Scored the insurance goal. Tomlin no, of wasn't, did the business. Was it him? Was it him who scored? Tomlin did score, yeah. Okay. Um, no, I thought it was... Uh, that didn't do it for you? Man City getting knocked out by Middlesbrough? Yeah, but again, Man, Man City, you know, are just... I, I didn't feel as though they really... As though they, see, they felt their season was on the line there. I mean, I just didn't think there was a... 
again, there was a sense of relief to be out of a competition yeah, just cluttering their calendar. Yeah, you're by Joe Hart being caught on camera. Yeah, well, I didn't care anyway. I mean, that, that's what that sounded like to me. You know, as, as opposed to an actual reaction, it was like, right, well, we've just been humiliated by a team a division below us. What else are we going to say? Mm. Oh, my God, I can't believe they've beaten us. Or, well, yeah, well, I don't, you know, it doesn't matter anyway. It's a yeah. good Joe Hart. Sorry, yeah. <laughs> Joe Hart Should I do one more Dublin? time? Was that a Dublin accent? I'm not quite sure what it was. No, it was a sulking teenager. Oh, okay. So it wasn't a Joe Hart. It yeah, was yeah. You know, more of a... Yeah. Um, no, I don't know. I mean, I, just, I mean, look, it's it's great, but, you know, if... I mean, maybe if Bradford were to go, were to go on and... Hey, look, I'm not trying to say... I'm not, I'm not sitting here Ken, saying I watched every minute of the FA Cup over the weekend. John I'm not, Gerard wasn't even playing. I'm not saying... Uh, no, he wasn't. I'm not going to say I'm going to watch every minute of the next FA Cup. I'm not saying as a competition for the top Premier League teams, it's very exciting. But I am saying that it's very rare in sport you get to watch the sort of scenes that we saw at Sanford Bridge on Saturday hmm. with a team two divisions below Chelsea, such as Bradford, coming. No, other, no Premier League team, or very few Premier League teams, I'm sure, have ever come from behind against certainly against Jose Mourinho Stanford, uh, Chelsea at Stanford apparently the first time a Mourinho team has ever let in four goals at home yeah. which sort of underlines the you know the of, freakish and magical and romantic uh, nature of the weekend's action we'll yes, find uh, out with the Fanning I'm just, you're just waiting for Mourinho to bring himself on in a game like that you know to, to, to put himself in goal you know with a big clowning around uh, for the crowd, you know, oh, I'll go, I'll go and go. Why not have a, why not have a go? Well, he did yeah. that. He did that in the the comic relief game last year, sports relief. Yeah, or or he you know, on, he came out and threw a slide tackle. Uh, theatrically, was, do yeah. the didn't he? Didn't he do that? The, the John Cleese thing in the movie The Meaning of Life, where he sort of dangles a leg out, you know, tri- <laughs> yeah. trips up a guy running up the sideline, yeah, you know, was, yeah. just for the laughs. You know, Mourinho actually did that. And I can remember that's the kind of game that he he might have done that, you know, and then sort of given it a bit of the oh shucks. You know, I thought this was I thought this competition was all for a laugh. You know what I mean? Right. Now, obviously, there's a defense. There's an element of, of defense mechanism at work there. You know, Mourinho is, is quite cunning the way that he does these things. But you know, come on, I just uh, I, Chelsea are not going to lose a game conceding four goals like that where the. You know, it really matters. We'll find out what Dion Fanning thought of the weekend, and we're going to chat to Tim Vickery about Juan Roman Riquelme, the legendary Argentine who announced his retirement at the weekend. Murphy, you saw him play in his favourite environment, the Super Classico for Boca against. Well, well, yeah, it wasn't quite his. his, his, his uh, that sort of occasion certainly his favourite environment. It was actually not in the, the Bombonera; it was right. in the. Um, uh, river Plate Ground which The River Plate Ground Which is El Monumental, Monumental. Yeah which yeah, yeah. is where The 78 uh, World Cup Final Was on So yeah Absolutely amazing Sporting occasion uh, But Riquelme was Three times better Than everyone else On the field really? It was blatantly obvious That he was the Like the class of the field By a country mile You've never been Totally convinced by him Have you Ken? Um Well you know He was he was okay Wasn't he I mean he was he Convinced was a, of his ability But he He didn't really Ever um, ultimately, succeed at the highest level. He didn't. I mean, three couple Libertadores titles. It's not the highest level, though, is it? I mean, why? If that's if the couple Libertadores is the highest level, why are all the best players in the world playing in the Champions League, including all the best South American players? Mm. I mean, it, it is a little bit unfair, in a sense, that uh, Raquel May is remembered for being the man who messed up Villarreal's. Uh, Effort to win the Champions League in 2006. He missed a penalty against Arsenal. In he missed what, the, the semi final. Yeah. Uh, and he had been the inspiration of the team. He had been the main reason why they were in the semi final of the Champions League. But he was then the reason why they didn't win that semi final of that Champions League. And uh, it's, it's a little bit cruel the way that it happens like that. But that's just the way that he's remembered. And I remember how nervous he was when he was taking the penalty. He knew. He was well aware of how important that was that was going to be. I mean, Raquel May is kind of has this. There's almost this sort of a myth about him that oh, he's he's a guy who just saw football in different terms. You know, this kind of rat race for trophies and you know the kind of uh, the kind of acclaim that gets bestowed officially on players who managed to win or you know, succeed at big competitions in Europe. Yeah, he just wasn't interested in that. You know, he was more interested in the beautiful pass. You know. Or uh, 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 an unexpected nutmeg, you know, just one, one artful feint. That's what the game was about for Raquel May. It wasn't about you know your your tin cups and your 
your your your baubles and your medals or your player of the year awards and your you know man of the match in the Champions League semi final. It's not what it was about. It'd be the anti Cristiano Ronaldo. He absolutely knew. Okay, it comes down to this. This I've got to score this penalty. <laughs> I've got to score this penalty. If, if I score this penalty. They would have been playing Barcelona. He was actually he was on loan from Barcelona, I think. Maybe he'd moved permanently at that stage. Uh, he'd failed at Barcelona. You know, just failed. Um, would have been playing them in the final. Even if they'd lost that final, to get them there, to play against his old team, would have been the greatest. It would have been a huge achievement. Nobody could have gainsaid that. Missed the penalty. Well, that was your chance. Sorry. Tim Vickery will be as insightful as always I'm sure on Raquel May a little bit later on in this programme time right now for Ken Hurley's Report on Sport So uh, I think we're going to have to start with uh, Louis van Gaal whose Manchester United team were involved in a game so long ago that uh, we can barely remember it it was <laughs> right at the very beginning of this extended FA Cup weekend Still not over by the way Rochdale's joke tonight Sorry. I saw a lot of Gary Lineker on Friday night. You saw a lot of Gary Lineker? Yeah. Well, he was presenting the BBC's coverage of that game. Mm-hmm. And he was subsequently on Graham Norton. Was D- he? Directly afterwards, yeah. Wow. Had a lot of Gary... Po- po- almost too much Gary Lineker, but... Um, <laughs> what, was he, what was he saying on Graham Norton? Uh, he was talking about his beard. He was explaining to Graham Norton what football is. Right. Explaining what they... He wasn't in with a bunch of big football fans, it's fair to say. Uh, there was uh, the actress in Interstellar, whose name escapes me, not a big soccer fan. Just a good Chastain. Yeah, David Attenborough was one of the other guests. David Attenborough informed Gary that he was actually at a Leicester City game. Uh, then he started naming the players who played, and you could see Gary Lineker pretending to know who he was talking about. This would have been in the 1940s? He said, I, ha- I went to that, that was the first game I went to, um, that was 80 years ago, and I haven't been to another <laughs> one since. So he was in, you know, he, was, he literally, he spent five minutes explaining to Graham Norton what the FA Cup was, and then thought, what am I... What am I doing here? Yeah. But anyway, I've I've totally digressed there again. Well, look, Gary Lineker. I didn't I didn't actually see him. I didn't see much of this game. I saw a little bit of it. I I, I noticed the score and I turned it on and it, it was. I was thinking, this is awful. This is dreadful stuff. And then I said, I'm I'm not wasting any more of my time watching this. <laughs> right. This is rubbish. Right. So I watched I watched some other stuff. What did you watch? Um. You were watching uh, Friends on Comedy Central. It was another Friends marathon on Comedy Central. Or perhaps... Two two and a half men. (laughs) What do you think of it since Ashton Kutcher came on board? It's not the same, Ken, is it? Totally different show, really. Surely you can get Charlie Sheen back at this stage. It's funny, actually, that you should mention it, but I was watching Interstellar. Uh, The movie I just mentioned. Yeah. Um, Which I thought was really good. I mean, that movie got such a hammer when it came out. Everyone was saying, oh, this movie is so stupid. It's so pompous. It's a... Now, I struggle with those Christopher Nolan movies. They're very... They're sort of. I usually can't follow the plot. I'm kind of like, who's that? What's going on? You know, <laughs> but Interstellar, I thought, was really good. Why did, why did everybody like that movie? I haven't seen it, Ken. Yeah, I, Have quite, you not? No, I quite liked it. Man. Beautifully shot as well, Ken. Yeah, I thought it was One great. of the most visually stunning movies. Ever. But look, better than Man United against... Cambridge against Man United, I think... Right? Yeah. Uh, even though I'm, I'm going out on a limb because I didn't really watch the Cambridge Man United game. What I did do... Film 2015 here with... Was read Henry Winter's review of the match right now. Okay. Henry Winter... <laughs> they call it a report in the non-film world, Ken, just by the way. Well, look, I'd like to... I'd like <laughs> a to, scathing review of Manchester United Cambridge. I would love to read Henry Winter's review of Interstellar as well. I would like to see this from time to time. But, you know, Henry Winter... It's not necessarily everyone's cup of tea. You could you could make a solid case that he was the top man in football journalism in, mm. in England. You could make a solid argument. Not, not everyone is necessarily the biggest fan of his style of writing, which may be at times as a touch 19th century. Mm. <laughs> uh, for you know, But Henry Winter, I think, is doing an important job in terms of he lets you know where the dead centre of football journalistic conventional wisdom is at any given moment and about on any given so he's he, you've got to have somebody who's doing that job and he's mm-hmm. doing he's doing that job uh, very well so if he looks into his own heart he knows what yeah. english football he knows is what Eng- the what english football journalism at its most conventional and orthodox believes at any one moment <laughs> right now but that's important someone has to someone has to be able to do that 
And if I was even hell, I'd be a little bit worried about what I read from Henry Winter uh, after the uh, the Cambridge match. That's all I have to say. Only says headline on Henry Winter's article in the Daily Telegraph: Louis Van Gaal is risking ridicule at Manchester United. Now, okay, maybe I don't know whether Henry Winter writes his own headlines. Usually, the journalist does it. Maybe he does. I'm not sure. I've seen this man working in press rooms long after everyone else is gone. He's a serious and dedicated professional. It could be that he's writing his own headlines. I'm not sure. But when, when we read down through this article, um, there's a sort of a canary in the coal mine thing, right? If Henry Winter has, has turned on Louis Van Gaal, the canary is, you know, the canary is lying at the bottom of the cage. The canary is stiff as a board, right? <laughs> now, this canary, -canary, we can say, is still alive, but definitely looking a little green around the gills. <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, no, so where, where are we? Where are we? Take your time, Ken. It's grand. People have time to listen to podcasts. The problem they have with, time on their hands. Like, the problem with Louis van Gaal uttering nonsense like every aspect of the matches against us when held by League Two opponents is that it invites ridicule, undermining one of the great coaches of the modern era, making skeptics further question his philosophy and credibility at Old Trafford. Okay? Yeah. Uh, he then goes on to explain how oh, every, every aspect of the match was against you. Really? Against Cambridge United's freezing homegrowns, Van Gaal started two World Cup finalists, including one who became the highest-priced ever Premier League signing at 59 million pounds, a goalkeeper amongst the best three on the planet, a Colombian on 265,000 a week, a 50 million pound rated Belgian starlet, a 27 million pound Belgian, a Dutch World Cup star, Ecuador's World Cup captain, two England internationals with 44 caps between them, and a youngster harboring legitimate England hopes. He then brought on a £30 million former footballer of the year who captained on the third place in Brazil, the global game's most costliest ever teenager at £30 million. Sometimes, you know, this is, you know, it's, it's a cold Friday night. You're trying to get this down on paper. Plus a £29 million, span, uh, 29 million pound Spaniard. It was the most expensive exhibition of world icons to be held in Cambridge outside the Fitzwilliam. Fitzwilliam being the name of the museum where many of uh, Cambridge University's uh, priceless artifacts are displayed. Okay, so pretty decent case there. On it went, the list of aspects raising concerns. And then he outlined some tactical concerns. Angel Di Maria, his positioning, Fellaini's positioning. Um... Any assessment of the Dutchman's first foray into English football must be prefaced by the bestowal of respect. Not reverence, as Van Gaal expects, but definitely respect. However, dot, 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 his self-belief comes across as arrogance. His public pronouncements should really be delivered from a pulpit. Being dismissive of the media is all very well. But Van Gaal shortchanged United's huge and passionate support with this who-are-you-to-question-me haughtiness. They were here before Van Hal and will be resident long after he goes. <laughs> <laughs> That's the fans, by the way, not the... Uh, Henry Winter should do an audio book of all of his articles. An air of superiority is particularly ridiculous when your team has just been held by a League Two side. Van Hal has to stop talking down to people and start talking to them. Otherwise, his innate authority will diminish. So, all I'm saying is, Owen, it's just one article by one journalist. But, having followed the career of Henry Winter over many years, I feel that this article is a sign that the press pack that follow Manchester United, Manchester United around, and Henry Winter is not necessarily one of those, he's, he's really one of the football correspondents who report on the biggest games. Sometimes Manchester United are, are get into his ballpark. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I would say... That uh, you know, a few a few words are beginning to be exchanged in that little press pack. Oh yeah, but you can see it, and, and he's not the first. I do take your point. You've said it very well, Ken. Why Henry Winter? The place that Henry Winter has with um, among the football writing firmament there in the not UK. everyone would agree he was the number one guy, but you could certainly construct an argument that he was the number one guy. The issue that I had with Van Hal the coverage of Van Hal before he took over was that he was congratulated on the amazing job he had done at Manchester United. Before he'd even begun working there. <laughs> it was crazy. Arrived. These same journalists, I can't remember exactly what Henry Winter wrote, but I wasn't reading too many, anybody questioning whether or not this was a great appointment. Everybody seemed to be absolutely bowled over by it. Yeah. Um, despite the fact that Van Hal, it's been a while since his really big club success. So you can't say he was a runaway success at Bayern Munich, for example. Now, he had that incredible World Cup, fine. But even during that World Cup, 
I was getting frustrated with some of the... I mean, come on, the goalkeeper thing. Yeah. The putting on oh. Tim Krul thing. Come on. Wow. Martin O'Neill had done that 20 like years it. before. Or had, was about to do it, but then his team scored a goal, so he didn't have to do it. Very similar. At one stage, he took off Van Persie and sent on Hundler. Yeah. He sent on a big lad up top. And, and this is serious. <laughs> well, Hunter, did Hunter not score? Yeah. I just thought that because, maybe because yeah. of the... Well, 100% because of the drabness of the David Moyes era. The English press pack were just... The precise reasons outlined there by Henry Winter for the current criticisms of Van Hal mm. were the reasons that the English press back seemed enthused about his arrival. He was going to have this aura about him. He was going to talk down to them. It's yeah. about time they got talked down to again by the Manchester yeah. United manager. But now they don't seem to like it when it's actually happening. <laughs> no. So I don't know what they want. <laughs> they forgot how annoying it is when you get talked down <laughs> by someone <laughs> who clearly doesn't respect your intelligence. Or your Choice of job. Do you know I mean, how long you can be as intelligent as you like? But I mean, they're thinking. Do you know how long I've been doing this job? You know, I know. I know a bit about football. <laughs> <laughs> I know that. Yeah. Lee Van Hal doesn't doesn't seem. You're to either not that. very smart or you're lazy. That's why you're a football journalist. You're no. one or the other, and I don't I don't respect either of those things. Yeah, I'm right at the man, top so. of this bloody game. Do you know who's really at the top of the game again? George Mendes. Well, this is the other thing that Manchester United did this summer. Not only did they bring in Louis Van Hal, but they brought. Horg Horg Mendes George Mendes back on board he had been he had been uh, friendly with Manchester United in the days of Alex Ferguson I mean they they did some great deals together Cristiano Ronaldo uh, Bebe did some great deals they did some deals Um, but it seemed as though David Moyes, he didn't ever did any deals with George Mendes. I don't know whether he, whether he tried, whether he wanted to go to dinner with George Mendes, whether he wanted to call him up. I don't know. Uh, what I do know is that this, or last summer, uh, they managed to do a hell of a lot more business with him. Angel Di Maria uh, and Falcao being the obvious uh, ones there. But David De Gea is a George Mendes player, you know, and maybe they're going to give him a new contract. Anyway, the point is, there is a new book out about George Mendes called La Clave Mendes. Uh, meaning the Mendes key. Uh, Andrew, where's your keys? Is... No, sorry. No, word. Sorry. Your keys to football. Yeah. Your keys to sport. Does it actually have a key on the uh, on the cover? It, it may do. I think it's got a smiling face of George Mendes on the cover. No, it doesn't have a Yeah. If uh, it had a key, then Richard Keys should definitely... Uh, chase after that. Oh, there'd be some sort of copyright issue. I'm I sure. would have thought so. It's called different things in, in different countries. I think, uh, for instance, in Portuguese, it's called O Agente Especial, which means... Special agent? Yes, yeah, yeah, the special yeah. agent. They couldn't say that in English because special agent kind of means something different, you know, rather than just the special agent in the sense in which Jose Mourinho was the special one. So in English, apparently, the working title is The Agent One. <laughs> which... which uh, yeah. Now this was uh, this was launched last week. Uh, James Rodriguez and author of the preface to this book, Cristiano Ronaldo, in attendance uh, at the glitzy event, La Clave Mendes, uh, and it is authorized. George Mendes seems very happy with this book. Now I haven't read the book, and I've merely read the first chapter of the book, and I can't wait to read the rest of the book based on what I've read in the first chapter. Let me read. Let me read to you the first. Um, Sentence. Uh, designer suit with vest. Vest here, I guess, meaning waistcoat as opposed to the, the mm. Rab C. Uh, designer suit with vest, select and elegant tie, impeccable shoes, intoxicating perfume. Uh, the latest haircut, three mobile phones in one hand, and a hands free headset permanently glued to his ear. Hold on, you didn't tell me Barry Egan ghost wrote this. This <laughs> <laughs> is John the Baptist. <laughs> It's written by uh, Jonathan Sanchez and Miguel Cuesta. Uh, the secrets of the great, the secrets of the best football agent in the world. That's the subtitle. Um, it's amazing, actually, isn't it? This appetite of figures in football for the for the most groveling um, s- stuff to be written about them. Like, I mean, this is this literally. You can imagine this being written about. Um, you know, Stalin and his toes kind of curling a bit. Actually, him kind of not being happy, but look, you've made, you've made me sound ridiculous there. You know what you've done? You've actually gone a little too far over the top. So, but George Mendes has no such concern. Uh, he says, so as I mentioned, designer suit with a select and elegant tie, impeccable shoes, intoxicating perfume, the latest haircut, 
This is the picture of George Mendes, born in Lisbon on January 7th, 1966. The best football agent in the world. I don't know if it means he was born the best football agent in the world or probably that he now is. He says, but this description is missing a key ingredient in the arsenal of weapons of seduction of footballers and presidents. <laughs> wow. His gaze. Those eyes to whom have succumbed world stars such as Cristiano Ronaldo, <laughs> Falcao, Mourinho, yes. Diego Costa, yes, yes, and Thomas yes, Rodriguez. Those eyes that pierce you beyond the redness. The only item that's out of the ordinary for a man of business. The rest is just props. So all the, all the other stuff is just the trappings of, you know, greatness. But the eyes. George Mendes defines himself. I am a person like millions who strives with work, dedication, and living things in a loving way. I'm saying what? <laughs> <laughs> now, this is a Google Translate job, isn't it? Only when you look directly and sincerely into those eyes do you see past the senior executive figure to the Portuguese joker kid inside. Because... If George Mendes values anything, it's the sense of humor. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> Always within his crazy world, there is time to tell a joke or a prank. You will not conquer with large arguments, but with a smile. <laughs> so it goes on like this. Right? This, is, this is on the first page, you know? Um, so it talks about how the Financial Times described him as the invisible hand of the transfer market. So this is how he sees his role in, in, the, in the game. He says, if signings happen, if the money passes from one hand to the next, football is alive. And George keeps it alive. He doesn't manage the market, he creates the market. The players set the ball rolling. And the best football agent in the world sets the players rolling. George Mendes is the finger that knocks down the first domino and sets off the rest. The Mendes effect, a phenomenon that occurs every summer and winter. But for that to occur, there must first be a preliminary step. That moment when the life of a footballer changes utterly. When he undergoes a metamorphosis. And that moment is when he meets George Mendes. <laughs> when George meets with his future player for the first time, he limits himself to one question. Where do you want to play? It's a question of responsibility and confidence. Nothing more. It's that simple. So essentially, imagine someone asks you, you know, what's your dream? How do you want to achieve your dream? Obviously, you want to put yourself in that person's hands. You think this person knows what he's doing. Now, he's a regular guy. George Mendes is a simple, a simple, humble, funny, and caring guy. Uh, he says, you do not want to win the world in one day. He's a self-made entrepreneur from the cradle. No one has given him anything. Uh, but the, he's also an example to the world, right? Oh, sure. He says, uh, for those who are in these times of crisis... History is the best example for young entrepreneurs, for those who are afraid to start a business and do not dare to take the plunge. This is an example for new generations, how to build a dream out of nowhere, uh, with nothing but dedication, effort, and sacrifice. Uh, and the last thing I just want to mention is what Cristiano Ronaldo calls him. A quote from Cristiano Ronaldo here. I call, uh, I call it miracle worker, George Mendes. You know what is a miracle worker? He who does miracles with the players. <laughs> <laughs> that's uh, that's Cristiano Ronaldo on his agent uh, George Mendes. That's what that's what this book, which apparently will soon be available in English translation, promises: the best kept secrets of the best agent in the world. Do you back yourself? The to get truth that behind the book? office, the key Mendes. Do you back yourself to get through that entire book? Yes, I think I will. I think I will. Once it's in English, I will. I will definitely read this book. Jose Mourinho is a big pile of Mendeses. You want to mention him as well? Who, according to the book? Um, has a, a stack of books about himself in his office. Mourinho. Um, why not? I mean, he, you know, you go into Mourinho's office and apparently it's a, it's a small, austere room completely covered in photographs of Jose Mourinho. <laughs> He's winning the Champions League. <laughs> it's not that austere, then, really, is it? No, it's, it's like... It's, know, oh, it sounds quite cosy. It's not like, you know... Kubla Khan's <laughs> sort of pavilion. Dub. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, it's just an office, but he's got loads of pictures of himself. He's there with the Champions League here, Champions League there, you know, league title here, there, and everywhere. And then a table covered in books of about himself. What's the, what's the thinking there? I mean, Mourinho, sometimes you wonder with Mourinho, is he actually just... Trolling the world. Some, no, but it, no. That because that sounds like kind of trolling. It's there, but maybe it's actually just bad taste. Maybe it's just in poor taste. Mm. 
I mean, what makes me tick? I'm sure someone's written a book about this. <laughs> I read this just to re- recapture my mojo. The idea may be that when somebody walks into the office to be blown away by, wow, here I am. I can't believe I'm actually here in Mourinho's office. Look at all the stuff he's won. Look at all the books people have written about him. He's like, you know, he's like Napoleon, you know, but won the Champions League in more countries. Um, <laughs> but maybe people are kind of thinking, oh, this is a bit, you know. I, I'm, I do I always remember that Diego, uh, not Diego Costa, Diego Torres, uh, Diego Torres book, yep. in which George Mendes was also a figure who appeared quite a lot, the Real Madrid players. Why is this guy always at our training ground? Is he going to get his own office here? Why is he always here? Um, and uh, Mourinho sort of joking around with the players. Hey, you know how much money this guy has? You know, to, to like Sergio Ramos or whatever. Trying to impress Sergio Ramos with how much money George Mendes has. It's not not going to be effective. He's not going to be impressed by how much money the guy has. You know what I mean? Have you seen his watch? Do you know how expensive that watch is? Sergio Ramos does not does not care about his watch. You know, maybe that's a, you know that that sounded like a lapse of taste to me from Mourinho. Mourinho anyway was um, he's done a couple of strange things recently. A lot of it has to do with his uh, he keeps having little pops at the Chelsea fans, uh, saying that they don't give the team any support. He's done it a few times now. Uh, and he keeps sort of, he has this love affair with Anfield that he keeps talking about, you know, oh, if if our supporters would only give us 25% of the support of the emotion that this crowd at Anfield gives to their team. <laughs> it's an amazing thing to say, I thought, you know, about his own yeah. supporters. Yeah. Uh, he's now kind of slagging off his fringe players too. Obviously, they lost to Bradford. He says, I don't make many changes. I try to keep stability in the team. Maybe now you can understand a bit better why. But I don't want to speak too much about it. Let's move on. He basically said, I didn't say it to the players. There's nothing to say to them after that. You know, he had said, which I'm sure he regretted before the match on Friday, it'll be a disgrace if we lose this game. Uh, and he said afterwards, well, yes. They said, well, you said it would be a disgrace if you lost the game. And he said, yeah, it's a total disgrace. I feel really bad about it. If I was you, I'd really criticize me. But just remember... For God's sake, just remember to praise Bradford City while you're doing it. You know, this is what he was saying. So, yeah, he's um, they're playing Liverpool, obviously, again tomorrow. Uh, it's uh, the League Cup uh, semi-final second leg. Uh, Jordan Henderson uh, saying... Uh, <laughs> Jordan Henderson, who may be the, the successor to Steven Gerrard as the captain of Liverpool. Uh, Brendan Rodgers says it's not automatic. Just because he's the vice-captain doesn't mean he'll be the captain, necessarily. Uh, Henderson being asked, what about this game? Will there be a bit of needle? Liverpool, Chelsea. And he says, probably. Liverpool, Chelsea, two big teams. Haven't really thought about it. It doesn't really bother me. <laughs> so there's Jordan Henderson, who may soon be um, partnered in midfield, it turns out, uh, by James Milner. Liverpool reckon they're going to sign James Milner for Manchester City for zero pounds. Well, that's a good signing, good value. Good value, I suppose. It depends on whether he's going to be on Falcao-type wages or uh, or not. But, you know, probably got three or four decent seasons after them, James Miller. Uh, it's the end of Kennedy's, is it? I'm looking at you for uh, an indication. Just mentioned Paul, Paul Pogba, by the way. Paul Pogba scored an absolutely amazing goal over the weekend. Everybody then talking about, uh, <clears throat> you know, how long is It's clear this guy's not going to be playing for Juventus next season. It'd be amazing if he is. Um, uh, Allegri, the manager of Juventus, everything has a value in life, and outstanding players are hard to replace, but things always move on. Uh, Pogba's goal that he scored actually reminded me a bit of a young Michael Ballack. The kind of power that he can develop in from either foot, uh, this was 25 yards out, he kind of got the ball from Tevez, just the, you know, this, the whole team is between him and the goal, knocks it slightly to his left, takes it past one player, and then in one flowing move, hammers it with his left foot. Um, it was it was amazing. Not a lot of players can do this. Um, it may be, he may be the Manchester United's Emmanuel Matic. They may be signing him back for a lot more than they let him go and for. And that is the end of Ken Erdy's Report on Sport. That's the question. That's going to be answered tonight. Tonight. So now, come here tonight. Tonight. Into Wexford Park. And they just must produce the goods tonight. Tonight. Their team is better set up tonight. Tonight. But they just... The bottom line is, Michael, they have to do tonight. Tonight. Now, I think Hawk have made a massive boo-boo with our matchups. Massive boo-boo. 
Tonight, 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 tonight. Dion Fanning of the Sunday Independent joins us to weigh in on our FA Cup debate. Dion, we've been arguing about over the merits of the weekend's football. We've just seen myself and Murph have fallen in love with the FA Cup all over again. Ken, on the other hand, was bored stiff. Where do you stand? Um, generally, I'm, I'm pretty bored by it at this stage. I have to say, watching Chelsea Bradford on Saturday night, it was, you know, it, it was an incredible scene, but and and it was, it was great to watch. And I think. You, we, you know what it means for for clubs like that and 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 places like Bradford uh, is is kind of something that can can get forgotten. Uh, and from that point of view, I think it's uh, I think it's great. But I, I do think there is there is this. There are two problems with the FA Cup. One is this kind of insistence all the time that what we're seeing is magical, uh, um, you know, which reaches peak in the last round when the BBC commentator said uh, the FA Cup is is like Santa Claus believe in it and it's there uh well i don't even know what it means but uh, but you know it's clearly nonsense um and then there's this sense that there isn't a lot you know i was i was at spurs leicester on saturday and uh you know before the last five six minutes which were quite exciting the 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 issue looked like to be looked like being a a kind of another tiresome debate about uh, refereeing decisions when uh, Leicester's uh, new signing Cramerich was booked for for diving, um, but but Nigel Pearson came in afterwards and he actually said, you know, if this had been a league game and when somebody's job is at stake, it would be important. And that is that is the problem with the FA Cup in a way. Nigel Pearson knows he's not going to lose his job on the back of FA Cup results. Now Pochettino's position might be slightly different, but there is this lack. Mourinho, I, despite what everything he says. You know, uh, I don't know how unhappy Mourinho will be with Chelsea being out, and that's and that's the problem with the cup. Yeah, well, I mean, I think maybe it seems pretty clear, even from talking to Ken, that he watched a lot more of the FA Cup than I did at the weekend. I'm saying I've fallen back mm. in love with it, but that's more as a match of the day experience on a Saturday night. I mean, that Bradford Chelsea, uh, as te- as TV, as 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 I mean, it's what a program like Match of the Day 50 years ago would have been designed for a drama like that. I would have thought. Yeah, it is, and it, that that's great, but. Uh, I do feel there is a, you know, at, at, again, when I, when when you you see a game like that, it, it kind of you think right, this is this is this is great, and the FA Cup is, has has still has some meaning, but everything else, you know, there are so many games still that 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 don't and are, are have a sort of flatness about them, uh, and you know, again, Spurs Leicester was the game I was at, and that that had that flatness, you know, they reduced ticket prices to get people to come. There was. You know the one. You know there was a good attendance from Leicester fans, but the game was terrible. Um, you know, apart from the last seven or eight minutes, and it doesn't. There's a, there's a sense now. I, 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 there's a sense that people just want it over with. Now that can sometimes be be a good thing because I was at the West Ham Everton replay, which was fantastic. And part of the reason that was fantastic, I think, is because neither side cared about losing. They just thought, well, let's win this. Uh, and they went for it. Whereas if it was a if it was a Champions League game or something, um, and it was an extra time, it would it would be it would be much more cautious because the fear of losing would have the kind of sense of let's just go go and win this. Yeah. And that's that's sometimes where you get good you know good games and you get better games at replays because of that. Yeah, and you, also if it had been a Champions League game, you wouldn't have had Jose Mourinho standing there ruining ruining it for everybody by saying, "Oh, you know what a game! Uh, delighted to have been part of that." I mean, if I was you, I'd be full of criticism of me, sure. But let's remember to praise these guys. Uh, you know, it's just... Well, it was just it was, he was like uh, Artie Fufkin uh, <laughs> on Saturday, you know, kick my ass. You know, <laughs> kick my ass. Like, you know, I, I, I messed up. It was, uh, it was pretty uh, obvious. Uh, these, are not, these are not the words of a man who, who cared about the game that his team had just lost. No, I don't think so. Now, I think with Mourinho, there's always... Uh, Going to be some sense where he doesn't want to doesn't want to lose, but again, I think you know he's making the point today about about needing players, and this shows why he plays you know so many of of you know the same players in in every game, uh, and you know the, the weakness of his squad is this illustrates the weakness of his squad. So he will he will turn it to his advantage if he can, like like any manager does. But I don't think he he feels. Well, look, we know this. I don't know. We know that it doesn't matter to clubs the way the way uh, getting in the top four, get, you know, or, or, or the Champions League does it does itself. Now it's interesting in somewhere somewhere like Tottenham, where 
you wonder if Pochettino won the FA Cup and didn't get the top four, it would be actually better for him as a manager and as, you know, would, would increase his chances of survival. But clearly, by, by being in the FA Cup, you know, that was Saturday was uh, Spurs' um, 37th game of the season. So, uh, you know, being out of the FA Cup is, is something of a relief. And you could see that even when Leicester equalised, there was suddenly this urgency among Tottenham, like, we don't want a replay. Get Harry Kane on. Enough of this messing about. Let's, let's send on Harry Kane to save it. Uh, and I think they probably would prefer a defeat to to a replay. Did he seem? I mean, Pochettino. You know what were you saying there? Is true. Mourinho is in, is a, is managing one of the only teams that can actually win the title and is in the Champions League. And Manchester City maybe are in that group. And there was, I think, a video of Joe Hart sort of you know blundering around and. I don't know. Don't need to win this. Blur- blurting out indiscreet things about the FA Cup, which everybody knows the players at those league clubs really believe. But um, Pochettino, I mean, is is in that group of managers, maybe along with Rogers, uh, Wenger, um, you know, Sam Allardyce, uh, who can't win the league, but who surely must be tempted then to look on the FA Cup as a as a big. Uh, you know, as, as the biggest prize they can actually win. He must have been upset to have, to have gone out of the competition, surely. He, 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 well, it's, it's hard to read him, but he didn't seem, he didn't, you know, he, he, he's made all the right noises. But I do think at the, the, the point in the, in the season and in the month uh, that it came, probably, you know, Spurs made eight changes, I think, and it was, uh, um, you know, they're playing nine, they've got nine, they're playing nine games in January. Uh, they have another they have the Carling or the Capital One Cup semi final on 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 Wednesday night, uh, and now if they lost that as well, you you'd, you know you, Pochettino would be under some pressure, so he could probably do with it. But again, he's thinking he's looking at February, which is already full. It's got Europa League, uh, and if you look at the fixtures, you know the cup would come along. If they had a replay and another cup uh, fifth round match, that would come just before the Europa League game. So he's probably thinking all in all, these are. Uh, this is the thing I can afford to lose, especially as Europa League also gives away, you know, is an avenue into the Champions League next season. All right, Dion, sounds like you, you can't wait for the next round of the FA Cup to <laughs> to hit the calendar. Thanks I, for your... I'll say one thing about the yeah. giant killing. Like, it is it is great, and you watch it, but when it's uh, when it's a Middlesbrough-Watford semi-final <laughs> at Wembley, um, we'll all be regretting our excitement. No no, no offence intended, of course, to uh, Middlesbrough. No, no offence attend- yeah. intended, but I think, you know, I think we all... Uh, know how we'll feel about that. Dion, thanks a million. Bye. Flame hair, flame hair, flame for the truth, Mr. Ken Early. Mr. Ken Early. Mr. Ken Early. Mr. Ken Early. Every so often, I'm on the bus and I suddenly turn around and bite someone. John Hayes, I'm talking about, Owen. Yeah. John Hayes. Now, I always thought that was ridiculous. He had won the victory over himself. He loved Brendan Rogers. That's where it goes from. Thanks a lot, Pepe. Fair to say, anybody could have managed those guys? No, of course not. Let me show you right now for you give it up. All right, it sounds like Dion Ken is falling on the Ken Early side of the great FA Cup debate. I should say, I, I, I'm, I don't know about you, Murph. I'm not necessarily talking about the FA Cup in general. I'm not defending it necessarily mm. in general. And I... Uh, being honest about it, of course, the way it's the TV coverage is, the most is, is painful so at times, very <laughs> painful. But uh, Saturday as a day was pretty dramatic, I thought, and breaks the monotony of the Premier League. I mean, some Premier League weekends are great, but some of them get a little bit, a little bit samey. I think so. It's nice. Well, to especially I think at this time of of the season again, where where it's too early for the games to really be maybe decisive, but. It's not as though it's a kind of the new part of the season where the teams that you don't really haven't quite worked out what the teams are going to be about, and you know it's always that, those first couple of months of the season are always great. In the last couple of months, you've got this kind of January a little, bit. Yeah. The January bit yeah. is just they should just just take the time off. Also, you get well, you get new characters emerging, such as Bradford's co-chairman Mark Lawn. Who was oh, interviewed at Match of the Day? Very, very big uh, tie, massive tie. The knot in particular was just, it was as wide as his head. It was an incredible tie. Bradford City colours, of course. And he, he brilliant, he's being interviewed, right? And he's, he's obviously delighted with himself, almost he's tripping on adrenaline. And he turns to the camera and he says, to the audience, to us watching at home, wait until you see the fourth goal. You just wait. What a goal it was. 
failing to understand that we've already seen it. Yeah. Where we're watching the interviews his... are usually played at <laughs> Match of the Day. Maybe you've never seen Match of the Day before. Yeah. It was a good Game goal, first. actually. I mean, the, what, what was amazing was the, was the part of John Stead. I mean, John Stead was oh, ridiculous. He's, one of the, one, his goal was brilliant, but he also had uh, two great assists. I mean, the, the link-up between him and the ice for the fourth goal was, uh, well, certainly if John Stead could have been capable of doing that more often than not, he would have been a Premier League player of long standing. I mean, he looks like essentially Peter Crouch with muscles, you know, but uh, lacked a little bit of the consistency of Crouch. Uh, this Sean. giant man will rule us all, Ken, surely. <laughs> <laughs> Why is it John Stead Prime Minister? <laughs> He's Peter Crouch with muscles. There's nothing this man can't achieve. Juan Roman McElmay has retired from football. He's 36 years of age now. He's been playing for Boca, as he did earlier in his career as well. He says, I'm someone who makes decisions calmly, who thinks a lot. It's clear now that I'll be on holiday. I'll have fun, enjoy time with my children. From now on, my football life ends and a new life starts. Let's see what it holds. Uh, what the football life held was, well, chiefly five league titles for Boca and three Copa Libertadores trophies as well, which is an impressive haul. The BBC's Tim Vickery joins us now. Tim, most of his success really was with Boca Juniors, with with his club, more so than the Argentinian national team and more than he achieved in Europe, I think it's probably fair to say. Is there a dichotomy between how he's viewed in South America versus how he's viewed over here? Well, huge repercussions all over South America and I think in Spain as well because, um, remember, and Riquelme carried little Villarreal very, very close to the final of the Champions League in 2006. In fact... Irony of ironies, uh, it was his penalty missed in the, the last gasp penalty against Arsenal that would have taken the semi-final into, uh, into extra time. Um, so he did leave a mark in, on both sides of the Atlantic. But I think it would be entirely wrong to see the importance of, of Riquelme in terms of, of the titles that he won, which, as you said, I mean, none of them came with, uh, with Argentina at senior level level, although there was the Olympics and the World Under-20 Cup with Argentina. Um, most of the titles were with Boca Juniors, a cluster of them, especially um, at, at the start of the current century. But it was about much, much more than that. I, I think Riquelme is a, is a kind of walking flag for the fact, often overlooked, that football ain't what you do, it's the way that you do it. A lot of players have won more titles than Riquelme. But Riquelme is a symbol of a type of football, a certain approach to football. And he's almost a kind of retro player, I think, in that uh, he was a, an old-fashioned, unhurried, foot-on-the-ball type of South American playmaker. The kind of, of player who I think really you can imagine... Um, in, in black and white, because he, he's always seemed to belong to a bygone age. And now as a player, he does belong to history after his retirement. He's the sort of player about whom uh, it might be written in a, in a hastily assembled newspaper column that he played the game with a smile on his face. But he actually never did. He, he constantly <laughs> had, a, had a sullen and uh, scowling face as he played the game joyfully. Oh, he could sulk. Uh, and, um, and his career was also littered with, uh, with uh, huge sulks and significant disagreements. And one of those was with uh, uh, a former Boca Juniors idol, Diego Maradona. Uh, and one of the reasons that Riquelme's World Cup career is restricted to just one World Cup is that and he would have been perhaps the linchpin of the midfield in 2010. But he fell out with Maradona, who was uh, at that time coaching Argentina. Uh, with Boca Juniors, there was a long fallout with uh, the striker Martin Palermo which uh, split the dressing room asunder, Riquelme's group and Palermo's group. Um, even Villarreal ended in tears with a, a breakdown of his relationship, which had worked very well for a while, with uh, coach Manuel Pellegrini. Um, he, he did seem a, a, a kind of... I, I think there, there, are, there are several ironies in, in, in Riquelme. One, one, one is exactly that. The, 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 the football hinted at a happiness that the man himself didn't often show. Another is that you watch him move, watch him walk off the pitch at half-time or full-time. There wasn't a lot of elegance in the way that he moved. He almost had a farmer's gait about him. But very few players, certainly in recent times, have moved the ball with the same amount of elegance and intelligence. So his, his career was, uh, was, was rift with, with irony and, and paradox. Um, but he certainly gave us some moments to remember. I suppose 
you would have 2006 as the big, as perhaps the crux year of his career. Um, but it, it was such a, a, a kind of if only year. And 2006 was the year that he, as I, as I referred to earlier, he came so close to taking Villarreal to the final of the Champions League, which would have been an extraordinary achievement, only to, he, he missed the vital penalty. And in 2006, the year of his only World Cup, and some of the football that Argentina played during the course of that tournament was exceptional. And the 30-second summary of the Riquelme way of playing football is the second goal that, that Argentina scored against Serbia. Now, remember, Serbia had hardly conceded a goal in qualification, and Argentina were one up, but that second goal, which is the wonderful collective passing move, when it's almost like watching the Serbia defence being, uh, being destroyed, being ripped apart. It remind, it's always reminded me a little bit of, of, of one of Muhammad Ali's early opponents, who, who said uh, that uh, fight, facing Ali's punching, it was as if uh, things went fuzzy gradually all at once. And the Serbia defence was picked apart gradually all at once, with Rakelmi right at the very hub of that passing move. Absolutely magnificent stuff. And it raised the bar in terms of what the world was expecting from Rakelmi in that tournament. And after that, he declined a little bit to the extent that in the vital quarterfinal against Germany, he was substituted, which in retrospect does kind of look like a mistake, um, but which you kind of understood at, at, at the time because Rakelmi's influence in the game was, was diminishing. Well, so uh, 2006, I think, is the... Is the uh, is, you get right to the heart of perhaps the enigma that was Rikelmi. You had some wonderful football, but it was a case of, of nearly and not quite. And I suppose some would see that as, as, as a symbol of, of, of his long career. Definitely. Uh, Philippe Lam, who, who played in that game for Germany against Argentina, says that the moment Rikelmi came off was the decisive moment, as far as the Germans were concerned, uh, tilting the game back their way. He'd been running the game and suddenly they thought, well, why is he taking him off? Uh, so it, it seemed to suit the Germans, at least, that Rikelmi left. But, you, I mean, that, that penalty against Arsenal, I remember this because um, the really memorable thing about it was Rikelmi turned white as a sheet and spat about 17 times in a row. He stood there. Like, it, was, it was like this, this really bizarre, almost like a nervous twist. I mean, you could, you could see the pressure that was on him. So it seemed to me that, that he was a guy who came to Europe with a huge billing and, and struggled to live up to it a little bit. He was like, uh, he, felt the, he felt the pressure of that. He knew that people were looking at him and going, hang on, this guy, you know, is he, he, he's a big fish in a small pond. He's, he's actually, when you get down to it, he's a bit of a bottler. You know, he, he wasn't like one of these guys who, who could come to Europe and sort of, you know, build his career there to prove himself there. He kind of had to live up to the billing that he came with. And, and it was something that he always really struggled with. Perhaps. And he was unfortunate at Barcelona, who were uh, the first club he played for in Europe, because uh, with Riquelme, it kind of it, it always had to be my way or the highway. And if you had him, you had to build your side around him. And Barcelona bought him. Louis van Gaal was the coach, Louis van Gaal, who, who, who really didn't want him. Uh, and that made things different for him. And w- with with Villarreal, I think it, it's it's a little bit harsh to call him a bottler because, and the achievements given the the size of Villarreal and the level of football that Riquelme played for so much of that campaign, and it, it is a remarkable achievement. But I, I think there is there in the the, the, the facial uh, the language of the body language of that penalty, there is perhaps a central contradiction of of the man Riquelme, because. As we're saying, if you play him, you must make him the fundamental stone of your team. But the man sometimes seemed a little bit uncomfortable with the responsibility that that entailed. Yet another enigma in, 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 in the, the, the walking enigma that was Juan Roman Riquelme. What, was the, uh, what were the details of the bust-up with Maradona, Tim? Uh, Maradona criticised the way that Riquelme was playing for Boca. He said, uh, "This Riquelme doesn't isn't isn't good for me. I, I, I want him. I want him further up the field." Now, Riquelme was notoriously thin-skinned, and uh, he felt Riquelme felt that to have the national team coach pass this kind of public judgment on the way that he was playing his club football, he thought this had broken the codes um, that should govern the relationship between coach and player. Um, which I, I think all of this story perhaps uh, sheds more light on the fact that Riquelme probably wasn't the easiest fella to handle in the dressing room. 
did he get uh, closer than anyone else though to um, earning the sort of adulation from Boca Juniors fans that Diego Maradona? I, I was about to say that Diego Maradona used to used to have. I mean, he still does. You walk around the, the stadium there in Buenos Aires, and it's all Maradona murals all around the place, and and pictures and all the rest of it. Did Raquel May come closer than anyone else in the twenty, thirty years since to, to actually recapturing some of that? I think he did. I think he's the, he's the biggest Boca idol of of, of the, the Maradona era. I love the story that uh, towards the end of 2001, there was a game at Boca Stadium, a tribute game for Maradona. And Marcelo Bielsa, who was then Argentina coach, went along to the game. Uh, and the entire stadium was booing Bielsa because of Riquelme. And Bielsa um, couldn't find room for Riquelme in the team, in his team. Uh, and Riquelme wasn't dynamic enough for Bielsa. And the entire Boca Stadium booing Bielsa because of Riquelme. And Bielsa, characteristically, absolutely loved it. He said, this is the essence of football. Um, I think that, that that begins to show some of the importance of, uh, of Riquelme to Boca. But interestingly, and this was something that Riquelme alluded to, when he announced his retirement on Sunday night, uh, Argentina played their home games at River Plate Stadium. River Plate, obviously the great idols of Boca Juniors. And I was there for those games, 2004-2005, when Bielsa had resigned as coach. Jose Peckerman took over. Now, Peckerman had groomed Riquelme at, uh, at youth level. Uh, and instantly, Riquelme didn't only come into the team. The team was entirely built around Riquelme. And having a coach who believed in him so much just allowed Riquelme to blossom. It's some of the finest football that I have ever seen from inside the stadium, watching Riquelme pass holes in the likes of Uruguay and Brazil. But what was very noticeable about that is that the entire stadium rose to Riquelme, not only the end where the Boca Juniors fans were, but also the end where the River Plate fans were as well. And Riquelme made a point of paying tribute to this. Um, so I think this is part of the importance of Riquelme, that he transcended, although he was a Boca idol, he transcended Boca and became the symbol of an old-style, foot-on-the-ball, South American playmaker. And that's why I think he was such an important figure, not only in Argentina, but also all over the continent. It's, it's astonishing the, the, the repercussion that Riquelme's retirement has, has, has brought about all over South America because he was a standard bearer for a traditional South American kind of football. And therein lies his importance. Sounds like you're a big fan. Tim, great to talk to you as always. My pleasure. Thank you. Brilliant stuff as always there from Tim, who is very polite in how he dismantles questions that are asked of him. I mean, right at the start there, I put it to him that, yeah, this guy was a complete no-mark in Europe. Great in South America, sure. And within about 10 words of his first answer, he's made clear, well, actually, he was quite successful in Europe as well. But he does it in such a way that you don't even realise as an interviewer that your, your question has been tossed aside mm. mercilessly. Yeah, Brian Murphy does it uh, brilliantly as well. Yes. He did it last Thursday. In what way? We asked him, uh, here, how come the Colts didn't recognise that uh, the balls were deflated? This is what we were talking about Deflategate, the New York Patriots, mm. and the, or the New England Patriots and the Indianapolis Colts. And he was like, guys, great question. Because uh, I only found out this week that the teams actually use different sets of balls. So it was like, well, they use different balls, oh. you clowns. <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> great question, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great question. Uh, uh, we were too busy just like uh, air-fiving each other that yeah. we'd ask a good question to realise that he'd actually made total fools out of us. I don't think I, I really got across very well what I meant about Rukami. Like, I think it was important to him to succeed in Europe. I don't think he did. I mean, not com- not he, d- he didn't succeed on the level that he hope that he would or that you know people say oh this guy Rikama is going to come here and absolutely oh, he's amazing we haven't seen a playmaker like this guy in you know 10 20 years and he, you know he just wasn't that good he didn't have that kind of impact and I think he knew but some some people maybe are you know I mean uh, Cantona's guy who's been in all the news this week again you kind of think about him and how when he moved to England his career in France was already dead. He was considered a turkey in France. This guy is a, he's like a bad-tempered turkey that pecks at the other turkeys and you have to eventually throw him out, right? <laughs> you can't you can't You, you can't stuck with the turkey. I, I like it. Six, uh, six clubs, there. six clubs in France before eventually washed up Eric Cantona goes and I think has a trial with Sheffield Wednesday or whatever. Mm-hmm. Trevor Francis isn't sure about him. Howard Wilkinson, wasn't it? it was, or, sorry. It was, yes, it was yeah, Trevor, yeah, Trevor yeah, Francis yeah, at Sheffield Wednesday. I, I think Cantona didn't like the fact that he was being made to do a trial. So when Howard Wilkinson came along, Jared Houdier was trying to get him the deal. You know, Jared Houdier was, was Cantona's uh, guardian angel and employment agent. 
uh, and he he persuaded all Howie Wilkinson to to give him a go, and the rest is history. Because the see, Cantona arrived in England, and it was as though no one really he he didn't come with a big reputation. He came with a reputation as you know, a typically French man, you know, sort of fiery temperament. <laughs> uh, and people didn't kind of realize how good he was, and so when he, you know, he 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 started from a with very little pressure, and then succeeded brilliantly, and kind of kept succeeding as long as he was in England. Um, much to the mystification of everybody back in France. Mm. Whereas Riquelme is the exact opposite of that. Riquelme was uh, universally faded at home, arrived, you know, with this huge reputation which he was never able to justify. I and mean, I think it was too much for him. But I think he's just one of those guys who's better off staying at home. Some guys, you know, Eric Cantor, I think, is one of those. He went away and the move away was the making of him and Rikama is just the guy who was happier to be at home. That's pretty much it from us for this particular podcast. We'll have another show out later today which will feature heavily Lencer's progress in Europe and the home quarterfinal that they somewhat fortuitously have been landed in, but they have it now. And uh, they'll probably make the most of that one. So we'll talk a lot about that in a little while. Do listen out for that one and all the other Irish Times podcasts on irishtimes.com forward slash podcasts. Very straightforward address there. Thanks, Murph. Thank you, Owen. Thank you, Ken. Thank you. Thanks Karen. so much, Thank Ken. You, you can follow us on Twitter as well at Second Captains. We'll chat to you soon. What is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home. Those, those, those boys.